0: Last spring, Beth and I were crossing the new I-74 bridge. While we were driving, Beth made a very astute observation about the old bridge. You see, while our community was excited about the opening of the new bridge, and rightly so, it's fantastic, the old one was being dismantled piece by piece without anyone really paying attention to it. And she commented that this is a metaphor for what is happening in churches and in our culture today, as doctrine is being dismantled right in front of us without people noticing. This past week, WQAD ran this headline on their website, quote, Old I-74 Bridge Prepares for Peace-by-Peace Demolition. The report continued, initially planned as an implosion, it will now be dismantled piece by piece, but explosions will be used on select locations of the bridge, so we have that to look forward to. Since we as a nation have disconnected from the Bible, doctrine has been dismantled and we are in societal free fall. You've seen it, you feel it, you sense it. Wrong is now right, and what is right is now called wrong. Lamentation about abominations in the past have been replaced with ubiquitous celebration in the present. I mean, how else do you explain the new animated sitcom by Disney, yes, Disney, called Little Demon? Listen to how Disney itself describes the storyline. Quote 13 years after being impregnated by Satan, a reluctant mother and her antichrist daughter attempt to live an ordinary life. I had an image I was going to put up, and I couldn't do it. It was so dark. I watched the trailer for the show, like a minute and a half, I felt like I needed to take a shower afterwards. It was disgusting, it was abhorrent, it was evil, despicable, nauseating, and I'm being kind. I'm reminded of Isaiah 5, verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Now, we certainly need to sound the alarm about what is happening in our society today. That sitcom is on FX and Hulu But we also need to look inside our own lives and inside the church. Because it's pretty easy to see what's going on in our culture and get riled up about that, and we should. See, explosions have certainly rocked long-held biblical beliefs in our country, but most of what is happening is a result of the piece-by-piece demolition of doctrine among Christians. So allow me to share some highlights, or I should say lowlights, of a just-release study called the State of Theology. Sometimes when you see studies, you're like, well, I don't know who did this study. I don't know whether to believe it. You see something on the internet. How do you know if it's true, right? This study is done every two years by two very reputable ministries. First, Ligonier Ministry. That's the ministry started by R.C. Sproul along with Lifeway Research, that's the research ministry of the Southern Baptist Convention. So since 2014, every two years, these two ministries take the theological temperature of our culture and of Christians. I just need to give you a heads up you might want to buckle up because it's about to be a very rough ride. I've selected just five of the findings. And if you want to do a deeper dive for yourself, and many of you do, just go to our website or to the app and click on the Sermon Extras tab and you'll see it there. Number one. 71% of Americans agreed with this statement, everyone is born innocent in the eyes of God. What is shocking and extremely sad is almost two-thirds of evangelicals also held to this belief. Now, this reveals that the biblical teaching of original sin and human depravity is not embraced by most evangelicals. Listen to God's summary of the pervasiveness of sin. We read what God said, Genesis 6, 5, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Romans three twenty three says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Listen, here's why this is a big deal. If one does not hold to human depravity, then the grace of God as displayed in the gospel of Christ is stripped of meaning and all relevance. Listen, if you don't know you're a sinner, if you're like, well, I'm pretty good, I'm kind of innocent, everyone's bored, born kind of good, well, then you're going to be bored with Jesus. You won't even understand why he came. Number two, when surveyed about scripture, the authors elicited a response to this statement, quote, the Bible, like all sacred writings, contains helpful accounts of ancient myths, but is not literally true. Eight years ago, 44% of Americans agreed with that statement. Today, it's over half of Americans. And one out of four evangelicals believe the Bible is not literally true. Makes it easy for individuals to ignore any biblical teaching then that's out of step with their own personal views. Their own preferences and more readily embrace sexual behavior condemned in scripture. I mean, this harkens back to how Satan got inside Eve's head, right? She, he put doubts in her head when he asked this question, Genesis 3, verse 1, did God actually say? Number three, another telling response came when 42% of Americans and 37% of evangelicals agreed with this assertion, gender identity is a matter of choice. Friends, that goes against the clear teaching of Scripture. We'll get to that. We're going to take a whole message on that topic. Genesis 1, verse 27. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him male and female. He created them. Number four. Trends over time reveal an increasingly unbiblical belief among evangelicals that, quote, God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. Does that bother you? It should. It's almost unbelievable to me that 56% of evangelicals do not believe that Jesus is the only way. When Jesus himself said these words, John fourteen six, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Amen. But friends, the percentage of evangelicals who do not believe Jesus is the only way is up 14% in two years. Number five, increasingly, evangelicals believe religious faith is a subjective experience rather than objective reality. In 2020, 23% agreed with this statement, quote, religious belief is a matter of personal opinion. It's not about objective truth. This is among evangelicals. In just two years, this has jumped to 38%. That's up 15%. Now, perhaps you've heard about this study because it's been all over the news. I mean, the New York Times has has done reports on it. Albert Moeller's been talking about it. Breakpoint Commentary and Christianity Today ran this headline based upon the survey done by Ligonier and Lifeway. Here's the headline. Top five heresies among American evangelicals here's their summary of the study quote it's 2022 but arianism pelagianism and universalism are steadily making a comeback american evangelicals grasp on theology is slipping and more than half affirmed heretical views of god More than half of evangelicals believe in heresy. Brothers and sisters, I'm calling us. It's time for us to get back to the beginning to make sure our foundations are secure and we are faithful to them. By the way, Beth and I spent about five days out in Virginia visiting our grandchildren. Well, we visited our daughters and sons-in-law too, but it was primarily the grandkids, (laughs) When, when I was with Jamie, our son-in-law Jamie, he's uh, actually in seminary. Uh, he was well aware of this study. In fact, he's the first one who sent it to me. And he told me that he took some time to ask his two sons these same questions from the study. Pip is six and Ezra is four. Jamie's a very humble guy. He kind of had his head bowed and... He had a thankful smile on his face, and he humbly reported that they aced the exam. So he was humble, but I'm bragging on them. (laughs) They're my grandkids. But here's the point I want to make. That shows the importance of parents catechizing their children. We don't use the word catechism much here. But to catechize means to teach, to train, to make sure our children know what the Bible says, that they grow up with a worldview that's biblical and not secular. It also shows the importance of grandparents partnering with them and the church partnering with families to help reach and disciple the next generation. Makes me think of a quote by Ted Tripp. Ponder this. You might want to write it down. Parents, give your children big truths they will grow into rather than light explanations they will grow out of. Church, It's time for us to hold to biblical convictions without compromise, no matter how controversial they might be. We must stay anchored to scripture to handle the storms of life as you and I swim upstream from the cultural currents in our secular society. Where the Bible speaks, we must speak, and we will not go silent like some, like many have chosen to do. We must be tethered tightly to truth and communicate it in a spirit of grace. Now, as believers, we must go deep in our devotion, deep in our discipleship, as Pastor Kyle challenged us last weekend. He did a great job preaching. Friends, listen, we cannot, we must not slip into this me-centered theology or this easy believism that we live like we want. We're like, well, God just wants me to be happy, so I'm going to go sin, nor can we be seduced by the doctrines of demons. You're like, well, that's strong. Yeah, that comes right from 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. Here's what we can see in the later days. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings, Of demons. Let's consider a quote by Kevin DeYoung. It's provocative. I'm actually going to read it twice because I want us to get it. Shallow Christianity will not last in the coming generation, and it will not grow. Cultural Christianity is fading. The church in the 21st century must go big on truth or go home. Shallow Christianity will not last in the coming generation. It will not grow. Cultural Christianity is fading. The church in the 21st century must go big on truth or go home. We might as well just shut the doors. That's one reason behind our new verse-by-verse study From Genesis chapter 1, the first chapter in the Bible, as we go back to the beginning. We're going to go back to the bedrock of our beliefs. You see, Genesis is not just the first book of Scripture, it's the foundation for the rest of Scripture. Parents, many of our classes down in the lower level, our students, our kids are studying the book of Genesis as well. Here's here's our main idea. Here's where we're headed today to move forward in our faith. We must go back to the beginning. Let me put up a schedule. Here's where we're headed during the months of October and November. Now, to get the most out of our study in the book of Genesis, I thought I'd make some action steps right near the beginning of the message. When we preach through Romans chapter 8, many of you read Romans 8 every day during the month of August. Way to go. Well, let me give a couple action steps. Action step number one, pick up a Bible reading plan. Pastor Kyle designs these. This month, we're reading through the entire book of Genesis These are available at both resource kiosks. You can also get them online on our mobile app or on our website. Here's the second challenge, and this is a big one. Read the entire book of Genesis in one sitting before Thanksgiving. Third, and this is a bonus. Some of you are like, okay, I got those two. Give me more. All right, here it is. Read Genesis chapter 1 on top of these two assignments. Read Genesis chapter 1 every day during the month of October. Now, why is all this so important? 2 Timothy chapter 3 tells us that you and I can trust the book of Genesis, all of Scripture. Why? Because all Scripture is breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, And for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Moses was the human author of Genesis and the Holy Spirit, the divine author. At the turn of the 20th century, many liberals assumed Moses could not have written the Pentateuch. That's the first five books of the Old Testament. Why? Because they didn't think that the primitive Jews had the capacity to write back then. Well, not surprisingly, that's been refuted by archaeology, which has conclusively proven writing was a part of their culture. Here's some other reasons you and I can and must trust Genesis. Now, there's parts of the message today I know I'm going to race through. I'm just giving you a heads up. If you're trying to take notes, good luck. But we do have a note sheet that Marie Guyton, our office uh, manager, puts together each week. They're available in the kiosk. They're also available on Fridays. We email those out to everybody along with the sermon manuscript. So you get that on Friday. Simply send an email to info at edgewoodbaptist.net or call Marie in the office if you want. All right, all right here we go. Number one, the Bible doesn't begin like a fairy tale. It doesn't begin once upon a time. It begins this way, in the beginning, God. Number two, genealogies in Genesis gives the names of actual people who lived in specific times of history. In fact, the entire framework of Genesis is built around genealogies. You know those names we can't pronounce? Those are real people and I put all the chapters up there, would have lists of genealogies. Number three, Jesus himself confirmed Moses as the human author. John 5, for if you believe Moses, you would believe me. Why? For he wrote of me. But if you don't believe his writings, if you discount Genesis, well, then how will you believe my words? Next, number four, the scribes and Pharisees referred to Moses as the author of the first five books. Matthew 22, 24, teacher Moses said, how about this? Jesus quoted from the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 2, this at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. Verse 24, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Jesus quoted from Genesis chapter 2 in Matthew chapter 19. Number six, Jesus acknowledged Noah and the flood as an historic event. In fact, he tied his second coming to that factual event, Matthew 24, 37, for as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Number seven, the Apostle Paul affirmed Adam and Eve as actual people. First Timothy 2.13, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. Number eight, Paul also held up Abraham and Sarah. We learn about them in Genesis as models of faith. You see that in many of his letters. Let me just pick one, Galatians four twenty two. for it's written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman, one by a free woman. Number nine, Apostle Peter referred to a literal worldwide flood in 2 Peter 3, verse 6. The world that then existed was delused with water and perished number 10 one commentator has found at least 165 passages in genesis that are either quoted directly or clearly referred to in the new testament so let me say it as clearly as I can you're like waiting for that right all right so let me say it clearly we must accept what genesis teaches regardless of what society sociologists or secular scientists say or the supposed experts actually we must do more than just accept genesis we're called brothers and sisters to contend for our faith so apostates don't turn the grace of god into a license for sensuality We read about that in the book of Jude. It's a short book, hard to find. It's near the book of Revelation, only one chapter. Listen to verses three and four. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary, so it's compelling him, what's he want to write? To write appealing to you. To do what? Contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Don't bail, don't cave. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Write this down. Genesis either explains it all or it does not explain it at all. It's not just the first book of Scripture. It's the foundation of the rest of Scripture. Scripture. J. Sidlow Baxter writes, besides being introductory, Genesis is explanatory. The roots of all subsequent revelation are planted deep in Genesis, and whoever would truly comprehend that revelation must begin here. Some people are are down on the Old Testament, like, ah, we don't need to read the Old Testament. Ah, listen to what Romans 15, 4 says, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction That through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. We need hope today, don't we? The Hebrew title comes from the opening words, in the beginning. The English title, Genesis, comes from the Greek translation of the Pentateuch. It means origin, source, birth, That's why Genesis is referred to as the book of beginnings. The overall genre of Genesis is made up of highly developed and complex historical narratives with a focus on key individuals. Friends, to move forward in our faith, we must go back to the beginning. Now, one way to understand Genesis is to see the first 11 chapters as dealing with the human race and chapters 12 through 50 as God's promises to the chosen race. The first chapters describe four major events, creation, fall, flood, and the nations. The final 75% of the book focuses on the history of four main patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. We could outline it like this, chapters 1 through 11, primitive history, chapters 12 through 50, patriarchal history. I've also found this outline helpful, generation, degeneration, and regeneration, Here's another one with alliteration, (laughs) creation, catastrophe, confusion, and covenant. Book of Genesis lays out four foundations, which we can see fleshed out in the rest of Scripture. You have creation, chapter 1, verse 1, fall, chapter 3, redemption, also chapter 3, and new creation, chapter 9, verse 1. I wrote down some other themes that are in the book of Genesis. I'll go through them quickly. Number one, the eternal and sovereign God created everything out of nothing. in six days for his glory and for the good of those he created. Friends, the, or, the universe is not self-originated. It is the direct result of the creator's work. Number two, the doctrine of the Trinity is found in seed form. Number three, the sanctity and value of life from the womb to the tomb is tied to God as creator, designer, and protector. Number four, gender is described and determined and and designed by God as biological male or biological female to reflect his image and for human flourishing. Number five, Genesis describes where we came from, why we're here, and where we're going. And everybody's searching for answers to those three questions. So when we compromise what the Bible says about creation, we invariably end up confused about our origins, our purpose in life, and our destiny in death. Number six, the historicity of Adam and Eve are presented as real people. Genesis records actual, not mythical events. Number seven, the gift of marriage is described as one man and one woman in a covenant commitment for life. Number eight, Satan is presented as a real entity with sinister plans. Number nine, the origin of original. Original sin and the depravity of the human heart is seen in gripping detail. Number 10, death and separation from God are the result of sin. Number 11, this is so good. God's heart is to redeem and restore People related to that, God loves to bless people. Number 13, the promise of a coming Savior who will crush the serpent unfolds through the generations leading to the arrival of Jesus as Messiah, son of David, son of Abraham. Matthew 1, verse 1. Number 14, sin causes family friction. And you're like, tell me about it. And generational dysfunction. I mean, you want to see some dysfunctional families, read the book of Genesis. Number 15, the worldwide flood was an example of God's judgment on sin. Number 16, the origin of nations and languages, all described in Genesis 11. Number 17, God is a promise-making and covenant-keeping God. Number 18, interestingly, God establishes the practice of tithing, giving 10% of income, even before putting it in the law of Moses. Some Christians are like, oh, tithing, that's law. That's Old Testament law actually abraham gave 10 percent of all he had to melchizedek the priest of god most high number 19 god accomplishes his sovereign purposes through the imperfections of men and women aren't you glad about that wow and number 20 god loves to turn bad things into good all for his glory And since God created the universe, he created the earth, he created every living being, you and I can trust him to handle the concerns in our lives. Friends, to move forward in our faith, we must go back to the beginning. Because this is an introductory message, and I just went through a lot of detail, and maybe some of you have tuned out already, I want to invite you back <laughs> to watch this visual overview of the first
1: chapters
0: of the book of Genesis produced by The Bible Project.
1: The book of Genesis is the first book of the Bible, and its storyline divides into two main parts— There's chapters 1 through 11, which tell the story of God and the whole world. And then there's chapters 12 through 50, which zoom in and tell the story of God and just one man, Abraham, and then his family. And these two parts are connected by a hinge story at the beginning of chapter 12. And this design, it gives us a clue to how to understand the message of the book as a whole and how it introduces the story of the whole Bible. So the book begins with God taking the disorder and the darkness described in the second sentence of the Bible. And God brings out of it order and beauty and goodness. He makes a world where life can flourish. And God makes these creatures called humans or Adam in Hebrew. He makes them in his image, which has to do with their role and purpose in God's world. So the humans are made to be reflections of God's character out into the world, and they're appointed as God's representatives to rule his world on his behalf, which in context means to harness all of its potential to care for it and make it a place where even more life can flourish. God blesses the humans, it's a key word in this book, and he gives them a garden, like a place from which they begin starting to build this new world. Now the key is that the humans have a choice about how they're going to go about building this world, and that's represented by the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Up till now, God has provided and defined what is good and what is not good. But now God is giving the humans the dignity and the freedom of a choice. Are they going to trust God's definition of good and evil? Or are they going to seize autonomy and define good and evil for themselves? And the stakes are really high. To rebel against God is to embrace death because you're turning away from the giver of life himself. This is represented by the tree of life. And so in chapter 3, a mysterious figure, a snake, enters into the story. The snake's given no introduction other than it's a creature that God made. And it becomes clear that it's a creature in rebellion against God. And it wants to lead the humans into rebellion and their death. The snake tells a different story about the tree and the choice. It says that seizing the knowledge of good and evil are not going to bring That it's actually the way to life and becoming like God themselves. Now the irony of this is tragic because we know the humans, they're already like God. They were made to reflect God's image. But instead of trusting God, the humans seize autonomy. They take the knowledge of good and evil for themselves and in an instant The whole story spirals out of control. The first casualty is human relationships. The man and the woman, they suddenly realize how vulnerable they are now. They can't even trust each other. And so they make clothes and they hide their bodies from one another. The second casualty is that intimacy between God and the humans is lost. So they go and run and hide from God and then when God finds them, they start this game of blame shifting about who rebelled first. Now right here the story stops and there's a series of short poems where God declares to the snake and then to the humans the tragic consequences of their actions. God first tells the snake that despite its apparent victory, it is destined for defeat to eat dust. God promises that one day a seed or a descendant will come from the woman who's going to deliver a lethal strike to the snake's head, which sounds like great news. But this victory is going to come with a cost because the snake, too, will deliver a lethal strike to the descendant's heel as it's being crushed. It's a very mysterious promise of this wounded victor. But in the flow of the story so far, you see this is an act of God's grace. The humans, they've just rebelled. And what does God do? He promises to rescue them. But this doesn't erase the consequences of the human's decision. So God informs them that now every aspect of their life together at home and out in the field, it's going to be fraught with grief and pain because of the rebellion, all leading to their death. From here, the story then spirals downward. Chapters 3 through 11, they trace the widening ripple effect of the rebellion and of human relationships fracturing at every level.
0: Did you find that helpful?
1: Yeah. I'll post that on the Edgewood Facebook
0: page. Some of you probably want to see that again or have somebody you'd like to... Watch that. Several weeks ago, an Edgewood attender handed me a piece of paper between services, and I glanced at it, but I didn't have time to look at it. I just put it in my pocket. I got home, and I saw the title on the top of it. It was handwritten. It was called Revelation and Genesis. I simply glanced at it. It was two pages, and I put it in my file for this weekend's sermon. I brought it back out this week and I'm gonna share some of it now and I've added some additional references. I'm gonna invite you to a time of worship because we're gonna consider how the Bible begins and how it ends. Let's marvel at how God weaves his way and his will through the pages of scripture to put his glory on full display. Listen now. To these bookends of the Bible. Genesis 1 verse 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Revelation 21.1, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Genesis 1.5, in the darkness he called night. Revelation 21.25, and there will be no night there. Genesis 1.10, and the waters that were gathered together, he called seas, Revelation 21.1, and the sea was no more. Genesis 1.16, and God made the two great lights, Revelation 21.23, and the city has no need of the sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the lamp. Genesis 2.10, a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. Revelation 22.1, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Genesis 2.12, and the gold of that land is good. Revelation 21.18, the city was pure gold like clear gold. Glass Genesis two seventeen for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die Revelation twenty one four and death shall be no more Genesis two twenty four Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Revelation nineteen seven, let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. Why? For the marriage of the lamb has come, and his bride who's the bride? The church has made herself ready. Genesis three seventeen, cursed is the ground because of you. Revelation twenty two three. No longer will, will there be anything accursed. Genesis three twenty one and the Lord God made for Adam and Eve for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Revelation nineteen eight it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen bright and pure. Genesis three twenty four it's how Genesis three ends. He drove out the man. Paradise has been lost. Had to leave the Garden of Eden and at the east of the Garden of Eden God placed the cherubim. Those were warring angels and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The message was, stay out. You're disqualified. You can't come in. (laughs) Revelation 22, the tree of life. Ah, with its 12 kinds of fruit, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. The spirit and the bride say, come. Genesis 3 ends with stay away. Come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Three times, come. And then a take. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. It all makes sense, doesn't it, for Revelation to fulfill Genesis? Why? Well, it's how Jesus identified himself, Revelation twenty two thirteen, I am the Alpha and the Omega. That's the, the Greek letter, the first letter of the Greek alphabet and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Let's circle back to the State of Theology study I referenced at the beginning in his Breakpoint Commentary this week. John Stone Street summarized the study, and then he quoted a Christian leader who made this statement about the study, and it's kind of tongue-in-cheek, but you'll get the message, quote, if we could get all the Christians saved, we'd be in much better shape. That's right. Think with me for a moment about why bridges are built. They're made so we can go from one side of the river to the other. Bridges are built to, to span a chasm of some kind. And they're extremely expensive to build. Uh, do you know how much the new I-74 bridge costs to construct? It, it's mind-blowing. 1.2 billion, with a B, dollars. Remember that the next time you're going across. God built a bridge to us, which cost him his son. Romans 5, 8, God shows his love for us while we're still sinners. Christ died for us. So in the genius plan of God, Jesus took our place that we might have his peace. He took our sin that we might have his salvation. He died in our place as our substitute so our sins can be forgiven. And he rose from the grave demonstrating his crushing power over the devil. He defeated death itself and he disarmed our depravity, paving the way to eternal life. Friends, Jesus. The Messiah, the promised Messiah, the one prophesied about throughout the Old Testament. The second Adam has bridged the gap between a holy God and sinful people, reversing the curse that God had put on the human race since the time of Adam and Eve. Is that not good news, church? Think of the crossbar of the cross as the bridge deck which brings us to God and the rock that was rolled from the tomb as the firm foundation of our faith. Would you stand? God, we thank you for uh, the genius of this book, for it reflects who you are, your character, your attributes, and Lord, my, uh, my guess is there's someone, maybe some people today who've been listening, maybe engaging online or checking this uh, service out even days or weeks to come and others right here in this room who would admit that they've been living for themselves, focused on uh, just a me-centered life. Lord, I pray for those individuals that they would turn from their sins, that they would repent of the way they've been living, turn to you and receive you Jesus as their Savior, knowing that you died in their place, your blood paying the price for all of their sins, and trusting in you, Jesus, that you were raised from the dead and you're coming again. If that describes you today, cry out to Him. Ask Him to save you from your sins. Ask Him that you want to, you need to be born again. Do so right now and don't delay. Lord, for those of us who already have trusted you, Lord, if there's uh, any sloppy living going on, Lord, if we've compromised with our doctrine or our beliefs or our behavior, Lord, we want to come back to be fully engaged. Lord, would you uh, cause us to repent and then would you revive us again? that we might rejoice in you. Use us now for your glory, for the fame of your glorious name with our neighbors, and also as we support and encourage and pray for those who've gone to the nations. We pray in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Have a good rest of the day.